How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Hey, um, real quick, two things. One is last week I kind of hammered on communion a little bit, and so I only I, I thought it fair that we would give kind of a detailed explanation of not only what communion is, but why we do it every single week at the church. And so if you actually go up to take communion today at each one of these little tables, there are six of them in here, three on each side, uh, pick up one of these if you're just unclear why this church takes that so seriously and what the uh, symbolism of that is, and uh, just something quick you can read over and get a little bit more clarity on that. Other thing is, before we start, you have to stand up and say hi to someone you don't know. It has to be someone you do not know. Okay, cool. I love watching you guys do that. It's a lot of fun. So, okay. Um, if you have not been with us, we are in the book of Hebrews. We've been in it for a while. We've got a couple more chapters to go. I'm going to split up chapter 10 and I'm going to split up chapter 11 because they're, they're both kind of lengthy and there's just a lot that we want to cover in that. If you haven't been with us, it's okay. You can jump in at any chapter and each chapter kind of holds its own. Uh, um, the themes run together, but they each have their own lesson with, within each, uh, each chapter. And so we're going to do chapter 10 up to about verse 25 today. And if you weren't with us last week, and I know there's a lot of people missing last week at the 11, it was Mother's Day, and um, that's good. You need to be with your mom. And so... Last week, if you weren't here, what we talked about was this. We talked about the whole idea or, or the transaction that is the cross, not the idea. It was, a, it was a literal thing that happened. But sometimes we kind of reduce the cross to uh, a trinket that we buy at Hobby Lobby and hang in our kitchen or, or, or something on our necklace or a tattoo or a bumper sticker or whatever. And, and it's not that there's anything wrong with those things. It's that sometimes we forget the magnitude of what that represents. And so we just kind of talked about that a little bit last week. Do we truly understand the magnitude, the transaction that was the cross, what Jesus did for us, okay? This week, we're gonna talk about this. Multiple times in the New Testament, there are three virtues that are mentioned, faith, hope, and love. In fact, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13 kind of made these things famous, that there are three virtues, faith, hope, and love, and of these things, love is the greatest. We're gonna talk about these three virtues today. And that with these three virtues, the believer in Jesus can overcome anything, any adversity, any temptation, any persecution, anything this life throws at, us, throws at us. If we have faith, hope, and love, we can overcome it. So the question isn't, are those three things effective? The question is, do we embody those? Do we possess those? Do we hold on to those virtues or those things that we truly understand and that we truly have in our lives? And chapter 10 will kind of bring up that question a little bit. Um, if it's your first time here, you should have got a notes handout. Everything I'm going to say virtually is on that notes handout. It's also on Uversion, the app on your phone. If you click on, I think it's event, and then live event or something, our church will pop up and everything's on there. And so you should have everything ready to go. And uh, we'll see where the Lord takes us today. I, I, I'm going to give you a preface uh, to this lesson today. I, I have been struggling, and I go through this every couple of years. I struggle with the whole idea of how we do church especially in the South. And I always ask ourselves, are we doing it correctly? Are we making disciples of Jesus or are we just filling up buildings on the weekends? And so I'm in the middle of that funk. So just know if I get a little heated, it's not you, it's me. And um, I'm struggling with some of these things and it might come out a little bit in this lesson. Okay, so if, if I start acting like a jerk, just be like, it's him, it's not me. So uh, <laughs> it's okay, all right? It's not you. Um, so let me pray. And um, I want you to know that if you're in this room right now, you're here for a divine reason. And so listen, pay attention. 
because there's something that's going to be said today. There's a reason why God has you in this room right now. There's something that's going to be spoken that's supposed to challenge you or correct you or encourage you or whatever the case may be. So please, uh, just make sure we're all present, okay? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. Father, God, I thank you for everything you're doing. Lord, I love this church. I love, I love, I love the people in this room, God. I love them. And if I love them, Lord, I know that you love them to a degree that we can't even comprehend. And so, God, I just pray that you speak to us today. God, give me wisdom in my speech. Give me accuracy in the lesson. Lord, let your word be an encouragement and let it be a correction and let it be an arrow that points us, God, to you. And um, Lord Jesus, we pray for every church in our city. We pray that you bless them. We pray that your kingdom advances through them and through the great nonprofits of our city and all the great individuals, Lord, who are trying to advance your kingdom. God, encourage us and give us strength and give us stamina and give us endurance, Lord. We love you and we lift you up, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Hebrews is right before the book of James, right after the book of Philemon. I'm in chapter 10, which is right after chapter 9. Uh, here we go. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifice, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, as he, Jesus, was coming into the world, he said, you did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in the whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll that I have come to do your will, God. After he says above, you did not want to delight or in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offering according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will of God, we have been sanctified, that means set apart for God's purposes, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So if you haven't been here, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of doing a comparing and contrast between the Old Testament ceremonies and laws and rituals versus the New Testament, the new promise, what Jesus has done since he died on the cross. Now, what the author is doing in Hebrews, we don't know who wrote this and who it was written to, but the author in Hebrews is wrapping up his points about the Old Testament ceremonies his points about bringing an uh, awareness of holiness. Holiness is a fancy word for saying living in a way that pleases God. And our need for a savior. He's wrapping up his arguments for that, if you will. These ceremonies, if you haven't been here, the Old Testament laws, the ceremonies of the Old Testament, they only reveal sin. They do not remove sin. And so basically what is happening is the ways of the Old Testament, the laws of the Old Testament could not put us into a relationship with God. All they did was point to the one that can give us a relationship with God. That's Jesus Christ. So everything done in the Old Testament, the laws, the ceremonies, all of this was a big flashing arrow that set up Jesus Christ. So if the laws had made us perfect, 
They wouldn't have to be done over and over and over again, all these different laws. The Old Testament sacrifices only dealt with the infractions committed the year prior. So for instance, like in January of 2016, we would roll back all the sins of 2015. And then we'd have to do that in 2017 for all the sins of 2016. And on and on it would go. So imagine that started in the third chapter of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve, they sinned. And so all these sins had been shoved ahead until Jesus came onto the scene and he paid for the price of all those infractions. So just the fact that the sacrifices were repetitious showed that they were not sufficient. They were inadequate to remove the sin, remove the guilt, ultimately remove the problem. So if the animal sacrifices were God's design in the Old Testament and they were ineffective, why? How does that work? Well, they were ineffective at removing sin because God never intended for them to remove sin. That was never the intention of the animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices, just like I said, were a huge flashing arrow pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus. And so what Jesus, or what he was fulfilling and what God wanted was a sacrifice pleasing to God, which is a broken spirit. That's what David wrote in the Psalms, in Psalms 51, that the only thing that God is really desiring is a broken spirit. And the perfect sacrifice of Jesus could represent a broken, contrite, fully devoted expression of obedience to God. It was the only thing that could be that perfect devotion to God was Jesus Christ. So he came and fulfilled that. So the inadequacy of the first promise the old ways, the old ceremonies, the old laws, all these things. The inadequacy of the first covenant begged for a second covenant, a new covenant, a new testament. So the failure of the animal sacrifices, and that doesn't mean that God was wrong or that he failed, but the failure of the animal sacrifices to secure forgiveness led to the explanation of a better sacrifice, which is Jesus. So the author quotes from Psalms chapter 40, essentially the mission of Jesus, which quite frankly is very, very simple. Jesus's mission was not overtly complicated. It was to do the will of the Father. Now, here's the big thing that I go through every couple of years and I struggle big time, especially in the Bible Belt, I really, really struggle with this is, we have made church so unbelievably complicated. We spend tons of money and build these big old buildings and do these ridiculous programs and bring in all these celebrities and we do all this jazz just to get people to show up. And Jesus didn't tell us to have massive amounts of people show up in a building. He said, go make disciples. So I have this fear that we've made church into a business and we've overcomplicated it and we've made it this hub for people to show up and see a rock show, but we're not making disciples. And so I have this fear that we've overcomplicated it. Jesus just wants us to do his will, full devotion. This is what the Bible says. Samuel, who was a prophet of God, he said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? The answer is no. He said, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. He's basically saying, God doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need your big buildings. He doesn't need your resources and all your fancy programs. He just wants you to shut up and listen. He wants you to obey him and do what he tells you to do. Look what it says. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Replace fat of rams with any talent, ability, money, sacrifice, anything you can give to the Lord. To just pay attention to him. That's what he wants is devotion. He doesn't need anything else from us. 
He just wants us to listen. He wants us to pay attention. And so Jesus came to fulfill the promise of Scripture. Christ came to give perfect obedience to God's divine will. And in doing so, he got rid of the first covenant and established the second covenant. And the complete fulfillment of God's will only appeared in Christ, in his perfect obedience. But here's what's beautiful. We can never have perfect obedience to God. We can never be perfect. So what we do is this. If we put our life in Jesus's hands, we are then identified with his perfection and not our imperfection. So when God looks at us, we can fulfill the will of God, not because we're good, but because we are resting and living in the one that is good. That, that's exciting still, right? Okay, good. Just making sure you guys are still awake out there. So, and this happened once and for all. This didn't happen over and over again. It was a one and done thing. When it says in verse 10 that this was once and for all, it shows the finality of what Jesus did on the cross. Through one transaction, not a repetitious thing, but one time, this one transaction, if we choose, we can have complete forgiveness of sins and we can be in the presence of God. Get this, through the action of the cross, we can be accepted by God. Now, that does not mean that you'll be accepted by the world. I can even make the argument several times in the New Testament where we're assured that we will never completely fit in with the ways of the world. And again, another one of my problems of Christianity as a whole right now is we're so concerned about what the world thinks of us that we adapt the biblical model to fit the worldly model. So we incorporate songs that have nothing to do with Jesus and we incorporate gimmicks that, that corporations use and we do all this silly stuff. And listen, the culture changes like the breeze blows. And so we're never gonna fit into that and we shouldn't want to fit into that. But the God of the entire universe says you can fit in with me. Our main concern should be to make sure we are pleasing the Father, not mankind. That should be our first concern. I'll get you guys awake eventually. I'll start yelling here in a second. <laughs> Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never, never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Again, set apart for God. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. That last line. Essentially, what it's referring to there is that Christ's action was a permanent pardon. All the rituals of the Old Testament, including what's called the Day of Atonement, the Jews call it Yom Kippur now, all these different rituals, all these different ceremonies, like I said, they only point towards Jesus, but in and of themselves, those ceremonies mean nothing. They're futile, they do nothing. And so when the priests would do all their different things, they would stand up and do them. Just like a lot of you at work, you have to stand up to do the tasks you do. So they would stand up and they would do all these tasks and they never sat down because their work was never completed. Now what that shows 
is that no matter how hard we work, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how many things we do, how much, how much talent we have, we can never find fulfillment without God's help. Our works don't bring us fulfillment. We must depend on his work and not our work. And so Jesus only had to perform one work, one act. His single action, which was the cross, effectively removed the sins for all believers for all time. When Jesus on the cross in John 19.30 said, it is finished, he meant, it is finished. I have done this act, it is done. And after his work was completed, he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. The fact that he sat down is significant. It shows that he had accomplished everything that he set out to do. His work was done. Now, he still works on our behalf, but that one work that paid for all sin has been taken care of. And since that action, the cross, what Jesus has done, we have been in an interim period, a waiting period. Since Jesus' time on earth, we've been in an era where Jesus has been relentlessly pursuing humanity. Right now, he is relentlessly running after you and I. What Jesus essentially did is he built a bridge between humans and God, and he is relentlessly trying to get our attention, telling us to walk across the bridge and be reconciled with our Father. That's the work of Jesus right this second. And he has already won the victories over all of his enemies. He has already defeated everything. I love what he says in John, don't be afraid of the world, I've already conquered the world. He's already taken care of these things. And in this interim period, though, we have not seen the complete defeat of all of his adversaries. We haven't seen that yet. We're waiting for that. But in this interim time that you and I are in right now, we're called to build our relationship with him. And we are also called to use this time of grace to connect as many people as possible with their creator. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We were called by him to make more followers. We have been called by Jesus to do what he's doing. Once his Holy Spirit is in us, we are now to relentlessly pursue those that do not know God and try to reconcile them with the Father. That's what we're called to do. Now, let me rail a little bit again on our culture here. Let's, I, people always get bad at me for this. For our culture here in Murfreesboro, we have right now in Murfreesboro, according to the government, 32% of Murfreesboro goes to any kind of house of worship. That includes all the Buddhists in town, all the, all the Hindus in town, all the Muslims in town, all the Unitarians, all the Mormons. That includes everyone, including the Christians. 32% of our city goes to some kind of house of worship. Now, let's just assume, though we can't because we know it's not, let's assume all 32% are Christian. And let's assume that all 32% of those have healthy, growing, thriving relationships with God, which they don't. That's 32%. That leaves 68% of the Bible Belt that is not actively involved in a relationship with Jesus. Now, we just think we're knocking home runs all the time around here because we have these audacious, ridiculous buildings because we publish Bibles in Franklin because we're doing all this. We just think we're slapping home runs out of the park. 68% of the community that you and I live in do not attend a house of worship, assuming that the other 32% have a relationship with Jesus. How in any mathematical equation does that come out to us winning? But what we keep doing is planting more churches in Murfreesboro that are really good at catering to the 32%. Who do you think goes to Christian concerts? Christians. 
So are we doing anything to bring in non-believers into the house of God and exposing the gospel to them? Do you know how they're going to come in? You're going to have to invite them. Freaking Michael W. Smith is not going to win the loss to Murfreesboro. You are. And you can think I'm a jerk and you can think I'm rude, but we have been given a time of grace to reach out and tell people about the soul-saving gospel of Jesus. What in the heck are we doing? So, no, no, don't, don't clap for me. I'm being a jerk. So remember the analogy of the high priest, a much better spiritual leader than I. Jesus Christ in chapter four is called the ultimate high priest. And what it does is it points to Jesus as the perfect spiritual leader. And here we are reminded that he was the one that made the perfect sacrifice himself. And that all respond, all that respond to the cross will be saved by grace. Now, when it says that we will be made perfect, it doesn't mean that we live in sinless perfection. We never will but it means that we have a realization that he lives in sinless perfection. And so we choose to live in him, therefore we're not righteous, but because we live in him, he makes us righteous. He covers us up and he has the desire to save us, the desire to change us. So back to the new agreement. He quotes the Old, uh, the, the Old Testament to prove a point about the New Testament. He quotes Jeremiah 31 to remind us that everything Jesus did was driven by the Holy Spirit of God. And we're also reminded of the practical application of the cross. The practical application of the cross is simply this, that Jesus went through all of that pain and suffering to forgive us of our sins and to open up the door to where our past can be forgotten. And everyone has access to that. Everyone has access to forgiveness and a clean slate if we place repentant, that word is so important, repentant faith in the completed work of Jesus. If we ask God to forgive us and if we ask God to help us, he is quick to forgive, he is quick to forget, and he is quick to empower us and help us. Okay, last part. Therefore, brothers, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." For he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what happens is the author of Hebrews kind of shifts gears in this part that I just read. If you read, if you've been reading Hebrews with us, for the last couple of months, we've been covering the doctrinal section, who Jesus is, what Jesus does, doctrine. Now in verse 19, it goes from doctrine to practical application. And the application of knowing doctrine, who Jesus is, what he does, the application of that is we are transformed. We have transformational power. We receive the power to transform, to be different than what we are right now by drawing near to Jesus by not only maintaining our faith, but growing in our faith 
And then when we grow in our faith, the Holy Spirit bubbles up out of us and we love other people. This is essentially what Christians are called to do. Draw near to God, grow in our faith, let the Holy Spirit pour out onto other people's in the form of love. That's what we're called to do. So we can approach God with confidence, not because we've done anything, but because he has. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can approach God with the assurance that he loves us and that we can have an intimate relationship. If you ever wonder if God loves you, he gave his only son. And we have confidence that he loves us because of what the cross did. Those of you with kids, can you imagine giving your only child for people that may not care? That's a, it's a love we can't comprehend. And since the dividing wall is gone, through Jesus' act on the cross, if you haven't been with us, that dividing wall between the room that housed God's presence and the average individual like you and I, Jesus tore that apart. And so now we have access to the most holy place. We have access to the Holy Spirit and the presence of God, everyone. And we get to live in a new and living way. I love how the Bible puts that. A life devoted to Christ is made new and the old self is put to death. Again, when I get to look out over you and people that I get to counsel with and I know your stories and I know your history, I wish that I could just just highlight all of you and show everyone the old way that was murdered and put to death and this new you. That's what the Bible does. It's a living way because now life has a purpose. Do you remember what life was like before you knew who God was? And if you don't know who God is, what's your purpose? What's your, to, to succeed in business and then what? You die, right? To gain a bunch of stuff, okay? Whatever the the true purpose of knowing who our creator is and being connected. And this not only stands in contrast with the ways of the Old Testament, it stands in contrast with everything our culture teaches now. Do you guys know what Christianity was called before it was called Christianity? Anyone? It was simply called the way. That's what Paul called it in Acts chapter 9. That's what Luke called it. It was just called the way. And it wasn't just the way to eternity. It was the way to contentment now not happiness. Do you know what? God doesn't care about your happiness. I know that sounds weird. Happiness is based on your circumstances. God wants something way greater for you than happiness. He wants you to have contentment. Contentment is joy that's not based on your circumstances. God wants you to have such a deep contentment in you that if the world is burning around you, you still have hope. Happiness changes determined on the, on, on the situation. Contentment does not. It's immovable, and it's, that's what God wants you to have. So whenever people say, God wants me, to be, wants me to be happy, no, he doesn't. He wants you to be content. He wants you to have joy. Happiness will, will come and go. Contentment is like a rock. So we are urged to approach the Father. If we want this promise, if we want this new way of living, we have to approach the Father. And how we approach the Father first is we must approach with a sincere heart. We must have proper motives. When we pray for God to financially bless us, it's not because we just want a new car or a more luxurious house. It's so we can bless others, so we can take care of our family, so we can have the provision that we need. Nothing wrong with nice stuff, but that's not why we pray to God. We must have a sincere heart, proper motives. We must also approach him in full assurance of faith with confidence that Christ is not only able to save us, that he wants to save us. He loves us, and then we have access to him. We're to approach him, this is important, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That means that we must live repentant. Can I tell you something? If you truly love your spouse, if you do something to offend your spouse, 
You want to be quick to say, I'm sorry. Not just I'm sorry, you want to be quick to say, I will not do this again. I will figure out a way. I will create roadblocks. I will set parameters. I will set goals. I'll do whatever I need to do. I'm repentant. I love you and I don't want to live like that. So if we are to love God even more than our spouse on earth, and we've bought into this idea, guys, and I know that this makes people mad every time I say it, we bought into this idea of the sinner's prayer, which again, if any of you can ever prove me wrong, let me know biblically. That's an idea that's about 50 years old. And what that idea has produced is, is that I can pray one time, and no matter how many times I offend and rebel against the Lord, I'm good. I prayed that one time. And that is not how a healthy relationship works. If we love Jesus half as much as we claimed we love Jesus, every time we did something in rebellion and offense to him, we should be quick to say, Father, I am so sorry. God, I love you. Help me not only forgive me, but Lord, help me not to offend you again. Help me, Lord, not to do these things that rebel against your way again. If we love Jesus half as much as we say we did, I wouldn't have so many theologians try to argue me out of the teaching of repentance. And with our bodies washed in pure water, that's how we approach him, that we live righteously, that we live according to the word of God, and that we publicly profess our faith. Of course, the first step in doing that is through baptism. That's what that's alluding to. But this is how we approach God. And then after we approach God, we're urged to maintain consistency with God, that we're to remain consistent in our relationship, to hold on to our confession of our hope, and that we're to do this without wavering. This doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that we continually lean on what is perfect, Jesus. That no persecution in any degree can cause us to be distracted or, or cause us to give up on our devotion to Christ. And through Christ, he provides help. He gives us stamina. He gives us strength. And if you don't believe that, in chapter 11, we will get examples of men who have had just courageous, miraculous strength and stamina given, in, uh, given to them by God. We're also urged, so approach him uh, uh, with faith. We are called to be consistent, and we're also called to be responsible for others. That we are called to promote good works. Now, again, we've gotten this backwards in the church. Our first obligation is for our brothers and sisters in the church. If there are people in this church that don't have enough to eat, they don't have a place to sleep, they need help with medical bills or whatever the case may be, first and foremost, we are to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. I love all people, but first and foremost, I'm going to help my family. And so we are to help our family first. And what a lot of churches has done is we're so outreach focused, which we need to be outreach focused, that we have neglected the widows and orphans within our own walls. And we need to get back to helping each other. And when that obligation is met, then we reach outside of our walls and we help the world around us. And the reason why we are called and obligated to help the world around us is we are called to do good works as a result of the grace shown to us. And when we do good works, especially for non-believers and people that have not quote unquote earned it, it shows them the love of God through us and it provokes questions from them. Why would you do this for me? Because God's been gracious to me. God's been good to me. Let me do this for you. And in that, more people will hear the gospel. More people will come into our family of Christianity. And so verse 25, this is kind of one of my go-to scriptures because I hear it all the time. We live in a generation now that constantly says, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Now, I know a lot of you have been hurt by church. The church I got saved in, married in, baptized in, the, the, the church my wife got saved in, hurt us really, really bad, damaged us really, really bad, and it took years to get over that. But here's the thing. The church is God's design, 
And whenever I hear quote unquote Christians say, I love Jesus and hate the church, it's like me saying, I love you and I hate your wife. We are the bride of Christ and it's blemished and it's imperfect, but whenever there's a high concentration of human beings, there's always gonna be a high concentration of imperfection. So whenever people say, I quit going to church because I got hurt, you ever been hurt on the job? Did you quit working? Did you ever get bad service at a restaurant? Did you quit eating? <laughs> then why would we give up on the church so quickly? So quickly. Great book called Bait of Satan. More people should read it. It's about offense. But it is God's design that we meet together. It's God's design that we learn from each other, meet each other's needs, encourage each other, lift each other up, correct each other is within this family and we should not take offense to this. If I'm doing something wrong and you know that I'm sinning and I'm hurting my family, it is your obligation and it's because you love me, you need to come up and say, stop, stop doing that. And I don't need to be offended by that. I need to be happy that you would love me so much to call me out. We need to correct each other, promote godliness together, work together for the good, not only of the kingdom of God, but for the local community. When we pull our resources together, when we pull our ideas together, when we pull our manpower together, we can literally change whole neighborhoods. We can change the city. And I'm under the firm belief that the local church is the hope of the community. It is the hope of the city. Of course, it's Christ working through us, but we are God's design to help the community around us. And look, well, look what he says. This should become more of a priority, not less, more of a priority. Every day we grow closer to Jesus's return. So don't forsake this. This is important. You need this. I need this. We need to be together and closer and closer as Jesus approaches again. We need the church. We need each other. And so these people were obviously disengaged from church from going to a, 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 a worship gathering. So why? More than likely in this book of Hebrews, the recipients, it's because they were being persecuted. That's why they didn't go to weekly services. Now in our area, we don't see a lot of physical abuse because of our beliefs. We see next to none. We see very little uh, physical abuse. We might see some social abuse. But let me tell you this, persecution is not when someone unfriends you from Facebook. That is not persecution. Christians think it is, oh, I'm being persecuted on Facebook. That's not persecution. Persecution is when they saw your heads off on the beaches of Liberia. That's persecution. And that happens. All over the world, that is happening. And that's something serious. And here's the thing that is somewhat unfortunate, but you're gonna see the church explode in these days. Jesus made it very clear in a couple of different instances that suffering will take place. You will not get through this life, John 16, without suffering. It's inevitable. And then many of us will face suffering at the hands of our belief, or, or, or uh, from our beliefs. We will, we will have suffering. It says that there will come a time when people will openly hate you simply because you identify with the Lord. Now, again, we may be seeing a little bit of that socially. Here's my thing. If we have to give away iPads and have Easter bunnies parachute out of helicopters and do all this crazy stuff just to get people to stay at church now, if we have to keep up in the show and confetti cannons and programs and millions of dollars on gimmicks, and if we're doing that just to maintain people now and it's hard and numbers are still slipping, what's it gonna be like when they threaten to kill your children? If we can't maintain our faith in the luxurious country that we live in right now, 
What is going to happen to the North American church when the pressure is really put on us? Do you guys ever think about that? So here's the thing. Though we don't face physical abuse and persecution like the Hebrews probably faced in this book of the Bible, we probably face a greater problem of distraction, selfishness, preoccupation. We're too busy for church. God, I'll get to you after I do this, 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 and this, and I might squeeze 15 minutes in with you uh, while I'm driving home from work. We might get some time together then, Jesus. We are not only gonna remain disengaged. Our relationship with God is gonna falter. Our city will not be everything that it needs to be. People will not hear the life-saving, soul-saving words of Jesus Christ through the gospel if we do not have these three virtues. Now, this is one of these things where you can go to Hobby Lobby again and buy a little plaque that says faith, hope, and love. People get like little cute tattoos of it or we'll get bumper stickers or shirts. Love, we love love. Love is the greatest thing. Love, faith, hope, love. And we truly uh, don't really grasp sometimes what these things are. The first is this, faith. We must have faith. The first virtue we must have is faith. Faith provides assurance. Belief in what Jesus did in his love. When we truly believe, that Jesus loves us so much that he, would give, that, that, that he would give his life, that God would give his only son, it gives us confidence that we can approach God. It gives us confidence that we can depend on the Holy Spirit. It gives us confidence that, to know that God has our best interest at his heart. Faith, it provides assurance. The next virtue is hope. Hope is an incentive to be obedient, not from the standpoint of fear, but if I believe that God wants what's best for me, if I believe that God has promises for me, not just eternity, but if I believe that God has the promises for me to be content, to, to have the best relationships I can have now, to, have the, to be the best father I can be, to be the best friend I can be, to be the best husband I can be, if he has all these promises for me, the hope of receiving those promises is an incentive for me to remain obedient to God. He doesn't want my sacrifice. He wants my obedience and if I'm obedient to him, there are promises that the Lord has for me, that he will give for me. So it's an incentive for me to do what the Lord tells me to do. And then the last thing, which is the bedrock of everything we do is love. Love is the foundation. Love is, or at least should be, the motive for godly living. If we truly love God, we will live for him. What did Jesus say in John? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll do what I tell you to do. And not only that, you'll love others around you. His last great call in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go out and make disciples. Remember that I'm with you. I'm with you. I love you. And so go out and change the world. And so if we truly love him, we will live for him. We'll be obedient to him. And we will go out and, and positively affect the world around us. So again, with these virtues, we can do anything. With these virtues, we can overcome adversities, temptations, selfishness, insecurity, persecutions, because I firmly believe that Jesus equips the believer. He doesn't leave us hanging. Again, the very last words that he spoke before he ascended into heaven in Matthew, I'm with you, even till the ends of the earth, to the ends of the age, I'm with you. You're not alone. You're not alone. That he equips us. So again, the question is not, do these things work? They do work. There's testimonies all throughout this church, all throughout this city of these virtues working, faith, hope, and love. They're effective. So the question isn't, do they work or not? The question is, do I hold on to them? 
Do I embody them? Are they a part of how I live my life? Have I fully bought into faith? Do I fully buy into hope? Do I fully buy into love? And so the question is, do you and I, do we value Christ above all else? Honestly, honestly, look at your time, look at your money, look at your resources, look at how you talk to people, look at how you deal with anger and stress and, and anxiety and all these things. Do we value him above all else? Is it where we want to spend our time? Do we want to grow closer to him? Do we rest in him? As a culture, do we find rest in our creator? Listen, this is going to be really offensive to some of you, and I'm not trying to be this way. Later on in the book of Revelation, I can't remember exactly what chapter, but it says that towards the end of time, right before Jesus comes back, the people will be a people overwhelmed or overcome or given to sorcery. That's not Harry Potter. That's not what that's talking about. Sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmakia. Pharmakia is where we get the word pharmacy. What the Bible says is there will come a time when people will be more dependent on intoxicants, prescription medication, things to medicate the problem, not resolve them. Does it sound like the United States of America? Does it sound like our culture? Just pop this, just smoke that, just inject this. In Manchester, New Hampshire, where we were a couple of weeks ago, there was 300 heroin, it's the heroin capital of the United States. There was 300 heroin deaths in the first three months of the year, this year, up in Manchester. It's a smaller city than Murfreesboro. 300. And they say the first way that people get on the road to doing heroin is prescription medication. It's the first way. Pharmakia, sorcery. So, in light of knowing that there will come a day if we're not already in it, when we will be a people enamored, drowning in, finding rest in everything except for Jesus. Let me ask you, brother, sister, do you rest in Jesus? When the anxiety starts to build up, when the stress starts to mount, when depression starts to settle in, where do we run? To a, a bottle? To, to porn? To food? To a prescription drug? Or do we run to the strong tower? Do we run to the source of strength and contentment? Do we tap into the Holy Spirit that is called the comforter and the counselor? Do we do that? Do we rest in him? Guys, I'm not hammering on you. I'm not making fun of you. I've struggled with it too. Do we find rest in him? Ultimately, do we believe the ways of God are better than the ways of man? Do we ultimately believe that God knows what's best for me, even above what I see? even above what I hear and what I think is right, even above my own ways, my own ways of doing things, my, my own ways of leading this church or leading my family or your own ways of being a student or working in your occupation, handling your finances, whatever the case may be, do we trust God enough to give everything over and say, God, your ways are better, your ways are better. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Do we have these virtues? And if we do, we can overcome anything. Anything that is thrown your way through the power of the Holy Spirit that will manifest itself in faith, hope, and love, you can overcome anything. Now, to have these things, you have to ask for these things, which means you're going to have to pray, which means that when we, we have, not, it's 1230, the restaurants will still be there, 
The sun will still be shining if it takes us a little bit longer. Use this time. Be respectful of those that want to use this time. Grab your communion. Find a place. Get on your knees or sit down on the floor or lay down. or I don't care what you do. Find some time to speak to the Lord. And if you struggle with faith, ask God to give you faith. If you struggle with hope, man, people in my office all day, every day, who are hopeless, if you struggle with hope, if you struggle with love. Last story. The church I got saved in, I was working as a student pastor. A student pastor. I was on the pastoral staff. I loved Jesus. I've never wavered in my love for Jesus. My love for people, up and down. And I was in one of those down moments. I just didn't have this love for people. I was walking through Stones River Mall one day, and this, this girl walks by. I think I was... I don't know, I was walking by like, I'm not picking on it. I was walking by like Hot Topic and this girl walked out and was really inappropriately dressed. I mean like, and so instantly my mind doesn't go to lust. My mind goes to like these really condescending labels for her. This girl is this, 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 and this. Just judged her, right? Right as she walked out. And I walked a little bit further in the mall and I remember stopping and just being like, God, I don't love that girl at all. I just called her all these names in my head and I don't know what her background is like. I don't know if she's fatherless. I don't know if her mother died. I don't know if she's been sexually assaulted. I don't know why she expresses herself this way. I didn't even bother to ask. Just judged her. I have no love. And so that day, I went to the prayer room in our old church. It was a little like 10 by 10 room, like fake shrubs in there, right? One of those kind of prayer rooms. <laughs> went into the corner of this prayer room, got down on my knees and just put my head in the corner of the room, just leaning up against the corner, I said, God, I need you to give me love. My heart needs to break when I see young ladies like that. I don't need to judge her or hate her or, or make up these things in my mind about who she is. I need to love her. And I need to get down to the core of her and see why she expresses herself like that because I want her to have a relationship with you. And I asked God to give me love. And I remember God just broke me. And I'm laying there just bawling my eyes out, just praying. And I fell in love with humanity that day fell in love with humanity. The moral of the story is this, I had to ask. I didn't have it because I never asked for it. If your faith is struggling, if your hope is struggling, if your love is struggling, ask. He's a good father and he's quick to give us good gifts and these are the best. Faith, hope, and love. And of these things, the greatest is, Paul said, love. Love. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord Jesus, God, I just, um, I want to speak to the, the non-believers in the room. Lord, I pray that something I said today, God, something, something just rattled their cage a little bit in a good way. Anyone who's struggling with faith in here right now, God, I just pray that, you, that, that you'd just show them a sign or send them someone in their life to speak truth to them or give them enough courage to come up to the front and ask someone about faith and just, just spark something in them, God. For everyone in this room who believes, Lord, they know who you are. They know what you did. God, for everyone in here who identifies themselves as a Christian, but Lord, maybe we've lost some faith. Maybe we feel hopeless because life is tough. And Lord, maybe we just don't have love. Maybe we even love you, God, but we do not love each other. And Lord, you said the second commandment, which is very close to the first, is love others. 
Lord Jesus, God, just let us ask for these virtues. Father, you're a good, you're a good father, you're a good God, and you want to give us these things. And so, Lord, let us approach you with a sincere heart, with a repentant life. And God, if we're sincere and if we're repentant, Father, I know that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, God, to the point to where it runs over and it affects those around us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your son. Thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that died for us, that we can be made new, that we can have a fresh start. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's communion on both sides, guys, all the way in the back, all the way up to the front. There's people on my right and left. If you need prayer for anything, please help yourself.